This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. I swear today's show is going to be just a big old lightning round. So much is going on in this world and it's moving so fast. It didn't take any even minutes after we got into the new year and things just, just started getting crazy right off the top. Um and there's a bunch of breaking news that just hit as I began this tracking, and uh, I, I don't even know exactly where that's going to go. Like Sheriff Arpaio of Maricopa County, the one that uh, Donald Trump pardoned before he was officially even sentenced uh, because he's his buddy and uh, is running for Senate in Arizona to take Jeff Flake's seat, who is retiring. And <laughs> if you're a Democrat, that's probably really good news because this is a guy who lost in his own deep red Maricopa County in his last attempt to maintain his sheriffness. He lost there. He's certainly not going to win on a statewide level. You throw the other cities in there and they're going to just destroy him. And he's running. So if he survives the primary, and that'll be a really good test of... How we're doing post-Roy Moore. Will Republican primary voters still choose somebody who's rabidly part of the tribal Trump team? So much so, despite everyone telling them that, you know, he's going to lose. Because there seems to be this weird kind of, you know, strap on a bomb and run into the politics attitude of we're just going to. We're going to stick with the tribe no matter what. There's some folks that are still there. And are they still controlling the Republican primaries? I don't know. I know my Republican friends are very hopeful that at any moment there will be a rebirth somewhere in that. The other thing you probably heard, Bob Mueller so supposedly is working out an interview to be done with Donald Trump. They're going to sit him down. And you say, well, he can refuse it. Yeah, he, he could refuse it technically. But it's never gone well for any president who's ever been summoned to a grand jury, whether it was Nixon or Clinton or George W. Bush during the whole Scooter Libby stuff and Valerie Plame outings. Uh, They all had to comply because not only because that's the law, but the political weight of it is so extreme. Even his base is going to want to say, Donald, go tell him, go sit down, Bob Mueller, tell him the truth, you know. You didn't collude. That's what you tell us all the time. There was no collusion. There's nothing going on. So go tell him. Set this straight. Put this to bed. And if he avoids it, uh, they're going to see him as kind of being Weasley. And it might take another three or four points off of his tiny little approval rating. I don't know. But it's going to be interesting. Meanwhile, too, the, the Fusion GPS transcripts have just been released by Senator Dianne Feinstein who is the ranking member of the Democrats of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where Chuck Grassley, if you don't know this, of Iowa, he's the ranking Republican. He's the, he's the chairman of the, of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. They collected 10 hours of testimony from the Fusion GPS guys. That would be the guys who uh, gathered the Steele dossier, right? The one that is much maligned by right-wing media saying that it's all false, that it's all garbage, 
and uh, they're trying to attack the Christopher Steele for somehow being criminal in his gathering of this information, not not the information that's found in it. And of course, the two uh, reporters, the two Fusion GPS guys, uh, Simpson and Fritsch, who are former reporters and then formed Fusion GPS, they uh, have been waiting for it. They said, release it. And if you may recall the great moment about uh, several months ago when a, a very wise constituent, some like a 50-something looking white guy who was talking to Chuck Grassley in his own town of Iowa and said, oh, are you going to release the transcript so we can see what this, see what the founder, the former of the Steele dossier, the ones who who put it together or asked for it and requested the information and gathered information, they can we see the transcripts? And Chuck Rashley at the time said, well, I don't see any reason why not. And then he said, will you vote to release it? And he says, I don't see any reason why not. Then suddenly they found reason why not. They made up a story, I'm being unfair, but they uh, made up a story saying that it would affect the investigation when everybody else who saw the transcripts, and including the people that have released it, uh, says, well, this is all just verifying a Steele dossier that everybody already saw. So it's his account of how they gathered it and got it. So that is out there. Diane Feinstein just released it. And you say, well, how can she do that? What if it? Well, it's not classified. That's the main reason why she can release it. It's not, uh, there's nothing in there that uh, was privileged information gathered by some sort of American intelligence. It's it's stuff that was gathered by citizens outside of our country, and uh, like, like Chris Steele, as well as those within. And they were just looking into the Donald's many business practices, gathering publicly available documents that they could find, and uh, both uh, at home and abroad, and put it together in a dossier. As well as all the salacious stuff that you've heard about, with you know uh, peeing and uh, on pokers in in, in hotels, uh, but that's just not even matter. That part of the story is so completely irrelevant now compared to where this is going. So, I, and that just happened. So, for the next few days, in the next show of Possibility Politics, you're, you're, then we're going to I'll have more information on on those many many bombs uh, that were dropped in that process. It's just unbelievable. Um, Another big story that dropped was that the senators, 30 senators, have now signed on to vote to reverse net neutrality. The repeal of net neutrality by Ajit Pai, who is the FCC commissioner. He and the other two Republicans in the majority voted, as you recall, to end net neutrality, which would allow companies to internet companies to to chain to to deny people's access to certain sites or locations to change their internet speed based on whether they are a favorable client and so it would be they they allowed it to become gatekeepers and so if you don't like the deal if Verizon didn't like the deal it was doing with Disney it could prevent Disney product from it would be glitchy and unable to be received they could deliberately do that they made that legal uh, for the moment, there's some tons of legal challenges. It hasn't taken effect. And in the meantime, they got 30 senators who will. And what that means, if you get in 30 senators, co-sponsor something, that, that, then you can bypass committee approval and you can force a vote. And that forcing of the vote, you guessed it, will make the Republicans have to go on the record, either supporting or not supporting net neutrality, which will be another 
painful thing for them to deal with in 2018. Net neutrality is widely popular. 85%, 75% of Republicans are in favor of net neutrality. It's an incredibly unpopular thing unless you're a corporation who wants to control information. All right, when we come back, uh, I'm going to get to that. And of course, the Michael Wolf book. Aha! All of that when we return to Possibility Politics. This is Possibility Politics, where we feelize our way to a saner future. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks, Juan Velasquez, producing the show, sitting next to me right now. And uh, yeah, it's so good to be in 2018. This is going to be... If you thought 2017 was crazy, uh, get ready. It's This is where all that momentum and critical mass is uh, starts to play out, and it's going to get uglier real fast. But it will also be where we see start to see as you know i love to call this the greatest social political economic spiritual technological renaissance of the history of mankind and you'll start to see where those forces of decency and good and kindness and inspiration and 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 hope are starting to overcome those forces that gave birth to the realization that we got to participate Apathy is gone. If you love politics, you're going to be so pleased by things like turnout numbers and so pleased by the numbers of candidates who are running and applying. Those numbers are phenomenal. I can't I could it would it would be way too wonky to do a show on all the various races because now it's not only just the usual narrative. I mean for democracy geeks like me, I love watching, oh there's some new congress people that are running that are contesting a seat. Uh, there are eight. Uh, There's so many Republicans, by the way, now that have retired and are retiring, and amongst those, eight of them are party are, are committee chair people, chairmen. I think it's one chairwoman, yeah, Diane Black, and they are retiring too, which really shows the uh, winds of change because they don't want to be humiliated in 2018. But beyond the normal stuff that you could actually kind of cover in a show is what's happening on the state level. Um, So many people are coming out of nowhere and saying, I'm in, I want to run. What's a commissioner? What's a, you know, what's what's, uh, the mayor? I want to be the mayor. And they're just flooding every agency that every organization and org that does candidate outreach, help, assistance. Tom Steyer, you know this guy. You may hate him if you uh, if you're a big Trump fan because he's been running those uh, impeach uh, Trump ads. Well, he not only dumped 20 million into his impeach Trump ads, he added another 20 million to keep that going, and then he threw in 30 million more to uh, elect not just necessarily Democrats. But elect people in 2018 that will be for the middle class and for poor people and for equality and for decency to counteract like this tax cut where they're just going to line the pockets of rich people in order to get their donors to be happy so uh, they can satisfy their billionaires. One funny side note to that, Steve Bannon lost his billionaire apparently after this Michael Wolf book came out. uh, And in his comments, you probably heard these ones where he called Donald Trump's meeting, Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with the Russians to get Jordan Hillary treasonous, unpatriotic, and bad S-H-I-T. And that lost him his uh, backing. That and Roy Moore loss made the Mercer, Rebecca Mercer, one of the billionaire daughters of the Mercer family who's been funding uh, Donald Trump and and Steve Bannon's endeavors to make this a more, uh, make America racist again, quite frankly. Uh, that's a strong judgment, I know, but it's not that far off when you consider, when you watch where their money is placed, uh, it's 
pretty much seems to be white nationalist based. They want to see the white male stay in control. Later in the show, we're going to talk about how that went, because if you'd watch the Golden Globes, oh, wow, that was a moment in history. And uh, I, I, do, I will get to that. I got the Michael Wolf stuff, too, but I want to get a couple more uh, lightning round things. North and South Korea, and this is how I know that this world is in such a good place. Because while Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un go back and forth about the size of their buttons with, with just the most thinly veiled penis references of their, you know, my button's bigger than your button. Uh, while that happens, smart people say, no, 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 no. We got to rise up. Because it means real lives for real people. And, you know, the Winter Olympics are coming up in South Korea, where I suspect a lot of folks are going to be uh, that, are, that go there will probably be holding their breath at times of what could occur. But this will go a long way to satisfy that. And that is that the South Koreans, North Koreans are saying, well, I, I, we can't wait for Donald Trump or the, or the, or the you know, the, the America and the White House to, to keep screwing it up. So they've been talking, high-level talks between the North and the South. And it has led to North Korea intending to send athletes down there. And they're also sending, uh, interestingly enough, a cheering squad, an art troupe, a visitors group, and a taekwondo demonstration team and a press corps. But they have discussed not only sharing, having them bring their Olympi- Olympiads down, which obviously is very comforting because it makes it much, much less likely that Kim Jong-un is going to uh, launch a, an attack on South Korea if his athletes are there. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't care that much about human life. He doesn't seem to. But uh, I would think that would reduce his, uh, his generals. Because the one thing about Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump have in common is that they survive, they live and die on whether or not they're, in case of Kim Jong-un, his generals, in the case of Donald Trump, his enablers, the folks that not only are the Republican uh, congressional leaders who are willing to continue to protect him, but also those in the White House. And we're going to get to that because Michael Wolff exposed some things in his book, Fire and Fury, that will help you, help me, helped me understand a little better why uh, they're all sticking and when they all seem to know what's going on. But... As I say, North and South Korea are not only talking, they're not only sending athletes potentially, they also discussed family reunifications, having military uh, talks to prevent accidental conflicts. This is a big deal. It's a really big deal. So, and, and, and hey, you know what, Trumpers, if you want to claim that Donald Trump's crazy talk of, of, of you know, who's got the bigger button helped bring this about, fine. Uh, I obviously will argue that it is the times and it is the intensity and it is the shared and mutual benefit of the participants that have nothing to do with Donald Trump or us in, or America in general, really, that have made uh, that come to fruition. All right. So another thing, like I said, the Robert Mueller talking to, to uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, out here in California. If you're not familiar, we always joke we have uh, we don't have weather here. We just have four seasons. We have wildfire season, mud mudslide season, car chase season, and award season. And two of them are happening right now, mudslides and, and awards. Uh, it's a lot of people now are getting evacuated. There's already been a few uh, losses of life as a result of because everything was burned away, and now we're raining like crazy. If you ever get one, if you ever come to Los Angeles, you want to see something really hilarious and sad. Uh, go to North Hollywood during a heavy rain. It's so flooded everywhere. <laughs> North Hollywood is this great little town that's been just emerging into this cool artsy town that's very gentrified and, and coming in and more and more interesting every day. Uh, fascinating stuff there, but it also happens to be this weird kind of spot in the San Fernando Valley where the water collects, and uh, you drive around, and uh, yeah, you'll see. It looks like looks like you're in Louisiana or something. Um, 
So that's going on. Another thing, again, one more lightning, is in college football. Alabama played Georgia. They stunned Georgia 26-23 in overtime, which is crazy because Georgia was ahead by 13-0 in the beginning. But the other things that came out is President Trump went there and uh, showed up for the national anthem. He got some boos. Uh, somewhat overcome by the cheers of the, of course, the national anthem, but he kind of embarrassed himself too because he didn't know the words. You know, it's like you should know the words to national anthem. That's probably a good idea, especially if you're the president. But if you don't, sit solemnly because the worst thing you could do is just start mouthing the words, and then you get to the parts you don't know and go. It's like that. Then you look. That's bad. Just keep your mouth shut. But whatever, you know. Uh, but there's all kinds of stuff. There's a marriage proposal in the game. It was a big 41-yard pass. It was a lot of exciting. Football is fun. Um, but yet football <laughs> has been, uh, they've done some studies now about the decline in the NFL, right? Because the right-wing loves to talk about, because ever since the Kaepernick kneeling, the debate using the national anthem, and obviously we've had a lot of discussion on this show about that. It's a very uh, representative of the convergence of white nationalism, patriotism, the honoring the troops and uh, police violence and inequality and racial inequality. And it all came together in these kneeling or sitting moments. Well, they did a a survey and they found that about 33 percent of NFL fans boycotted the league this year. But there's a second part to that story. They boycotted for both of the reasons. Some people said they boycotted because it was in support of Donald Trump. Some said it was because they were in solidarity with players kneeling. Almost the equal amount there. Some people said they boycotted because they just had no interest in the teams that were playing. Okay, all right. Some said said they uh, were in support of Colin Kaepernick specifically. And uh, some were said they boycotted the NFL because of all the news about traumatic brain injuries from players. And then a small percentage, 8%, said that games are boring. (laughs) So, um, but it's an important thing to remember because if you like polls and you like information, you like data like I do, you have to always remember that some of it, when somebody, when there's an opposition or or support for something, you have to look at kind of the numbers of why or why they're for or against it. One of my favorite examples is when Obamacare was, when the ACA was first being rolled out, they kept like saying this, they kept like, the opponents love to say that there was a 65 whatever percent disapproval in the beginning. There were these, you know, the high watermarks like that of this disapproval of Obamacare. But if you look at the numbers, half of that disapproval was because folks who thought, I don't want a government program, I don't want death panels. They, they really bought into all these, these terrifying things that would happen when everybody was started to expand health insurance, uh, even though the industry and, and, and everybody was, was behind it. But the other part of it was about 33% of the disapproval, somewhere between 10 and 30% of the disapproval, depending upon the poll, was by the more people on the left who were disapproving of the ACA and Obamacare because they wanted Medicare for all. They wanted more. Sometimes disapproval, like in the NFL, is a combination of being you know, against the kneeling, but also being wanting to say, hey, the kneeling is, should be respected. So... It's it's so fasting, and and we're really growing. <laughs> that is the point of all that is we're, we're we're rapidly expanding in our understanding of of who we are and 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 what do we want to get out of all this. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, you can hear a little cur- gurgle in my voice. Uh, I think everybody in Los Angeles has this same cold going around. We it's fashionable. Colds are fashionable. Uh, but the other thing that's very popular and fashionable right now 
is Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House. And I'm waiting for my copy still. But one thing that's interesting is they're they're ordering copies. It is sold out and ordered on Amazon in places you wouldn't. Lubbock, Texas, it's sold out in, you know, in Wichita and in Billings and in a lot of red places. People are buying the book. And Michael Wolf has been doing the circuit, probably seeing it. And I want to obviously you, you'll hear some of the details and the, the growth stuff, but I also want to talk about you know the why. What are we what are we pulling from it? And and to start that, here's a little bit from when uh, Michael Wolf was on Stephen Colbert. Do, are you are you uh, are you in any way surprised by the splash this book has made? Of course. I mean, you are surprised. I, I, I am surprised. You describe the president as mentally unstable, unfit for the office, basically kind of gibbering to his cheeseburger when he goes to bed. And but, he's got the launch codes. Why wouldn't I, that cause a splash? Because I thought we knew this. I thought we knew this. This is one of the fun uh, things that came out of this. He was genuinely surprised. He thought everybody knew how crazy it was in there. And I said, well, why? Because um, people like me, or if you're listening to the show, you're obviously an avid watcher of the news. And so you probably knew the the crazy. And to give an example, he said that some of the things that Michael Wolf says in this book is that everybody, and he said he kept every interview he's done since then, 100% of the people who work in the White House that, that work closely with Donald Trump said a number of disparaging things. The one they had in common was that he's like a child. They all said he was like a child. And then many of them said he's an effing moron, an effing idiot. He's uh, unfit to command. He's, he's, he's out of his mind. He's mentally unstable. They talked about how uh, the repeating of stories has gotten shorter and more repetitious, meaning that you know, it's funny because he talked about you'll, you'll be in a conversation. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows somebody like this where they'll tell you a story about, yeah, I was fishing last week and I got myself this big sucker. He was 18 inches long and I got pulled him right out and got the hook out and I cleaned him in 15 minutes. And then and then like 30, 40 seconds later in the conversation, they say, yeah, I went fishing the other day, got this big thing, 18 inches long. I pulled the thing. And it's the exact same words completely repeated. And they say that in, when Donald Trump just first came to the presidency or was just in the transition, he would repeat stories every 10, 15 minutes or whatever, the same stories. And now towards the end, he's reporting, he's repeating stories in, in the shortest of time, two or three times. And he kept getting these accounts of staffers looking themselves going, did I, did he know that I, he just told me that story a few seconds ago? Did he not, does he not know this? So the mental instability has been the story that Michael Wolff was surprised people weren't aware of. But they were aware of it. They knew what was going on. They all know what's going on. They all see that the emperor has no clothes. And this is the big revelation. So when I come back, uh, I want to talk about how that didn't get reported up to this point. Because that's part of the story. That's the metagame of the Michael Wolff book. And uh, obviously get deeper into the stuff he said about like what happened when Melania heard that they when when they won and and what Ivanka and Jervanka's plans were all of that when I return with possibility politics. This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This is the independent state of mind where we look at this gorgeous country and all her complicated glory and uh, love her just exactly the way she is. And the book is Michael Wolf. And it is surprising people. And, of course, the fascinating moment 
is it, it could have just disappeared. You know, every previous president, when some really bad book, and every president has these tell-all books that destroy and talk about how this was bad or that was bad, but every previous president just, just shuts up and goes, when they ask him for comment, they go, no, nah, I'm not going to comment on that. I don't tell him that. But Donald Trump did the opposite. He immediately started to attack it. He got his lawyers to try to do a cease and desist, which only amplified the uh, production run. They took a book that could have gone by, slipped by, and only really been talked about by the democracy geeks like us. But uh, instead, they blew it up into a big old issue. And that is how it works. When you are focused on what you don't want, you will get it. If you are doing all your effort to, you know, don't be late, don't be late, don't be late, then you will be late. <laughs> that is pretty much how it works. So um, I want to explain why. Well, we got a couple of clips, actually, that will sort of explain how that this was a revelation for people, because it really isn't. And let's do Stephen Colbert to figure that out. So how should I read it, though? Because I'm deeply conflicted when I read this. Because it's not that I'm not enjoying it. I am enjoying it. It, But it's not that it doesn't upset me. It does upset me. So on a certain level, I'm not enjoying it. As a comedian, (laughs) sure, I'd love all this to be true so I can make jokes about it. But as a citizen, I don't want any of it to be true. And you don't have sourcing, at least not listed, for everything you've got in here. So how much of it should I believe? But this is what you should believe... All of it. That's the alarming thing, that this is all true. But I do have to exercise some judgment. And you, you say you've got recordings of a lot of these uh, interviews here. Why not release the recordings so you can slap down the character attacks against you by the White House? Because I'm not in the recording. I'm in the writing business. you got to, uh, you know, if you want to turn to a recording, there, there are, um, there are um, uh, television there, these people are, are nothing but recorded. They're, they're on television all of the time. I'm offering something different. I'm offering, and this was totally mystifying to people in the White House, I'm offering a book. <laughs> you sit down, you read it, page after page after page. Does the story, is, does, this, does this comport with what you already know? Does it make sense? Does it have an internal integrity in which you come away saying, I think I understand this now? That's my job as the writer. I've got your greatest hits of this book right here. Some of the things... He's, he's semi-literate. Uh, he has three TV screens in his bedroom. He goes to bed with a cheeseburger at 6.30. He's a longtime fear of being poisoned. He likes and to that's, And this is, this is just on one page. Yes. <laughs> he fails to recognize friends at Mar-a-Lago, repeats stories over and over again. Bannon says that the Russian meeting was treasonous. He, uh, Sam Nunberg only got to the Fourth Amendment before Trump is pulling you know, down his lip. Ivanka and Jared have made a deal with themselves. One of them's going to run for president. Um, she makes fun of his ha- uh, Trump's hair. But Ivanka is going to be the first one to run for president. And then Jared gets to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this man, I, I, I would feel sorry for him if he wasn't the most powerful man in the world <laughs> because he clearly has no friends. So what are they doing around him? Why... The question is, why? I've been watching punditry, and occasionally people will ask Republicans in particular, ex, you know, obviously not serving Republicans, you know, why aren't these Congress people, why aren't these staffers uh, doing something about it? And I think he kind of answers it again. Let me, let me give this thing. Here. Is there anything in your book that you want, I can't believe nobody's picked up on this. Like, this was the shocking thing to me that nobody's picked up on. Is there something in here that you say, like, 
can't believe nobody's asked me about this event. You know, and this is less of a funny, this is like a, a fundamentally serious thing about this that everybody in the White House had their own press secretary. Yeah. So the president has his own press secretary, not Sean Spicer, but his private press secretary. Jared had a press secretary. Steve Bannon had a press secretary. So there are all these, these, these different press operations. So the answer, why, is, why are there so many leaks in this White House? That's, that's what they did all day. That's what the operation was. So everyone's spinning their own PR all the time. Every, everybody. There are essentially different White Houses with these little staffs going out talking to the press all day long. Anything when you were there that gave you hope? Like, oh, this, they do this well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People got to go to sleep after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, nothing. <laughs> do you I, think- mean, I mean, this is a really, this is alarming in every way. To sit there and basically, that's, basically that's what I did. I was like the, the sort of the... Um, um, you know, come to me and tell me how how horrible you feel about about working here. I was the guy. Wow! And just people would reach out to you because they had needed somebody to talk to. I, I think the truth is that they were talking to everybody. Yeah. And that, but only I'm, you got the book. I'm the only person who here you who, go. Um, was willing to say this here because I'm the only person who doesn't have to go back again. Right. Right. I mean, the whole. I wouldn't there's... go back again if I were yes. you. I mean, all of the reporters in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the press room and in the briefing room, and I was careful to stay away from there. I never went in as a reporter. Yeah. Um, they all, all have to show up there again and again and again every day. Uh, oh, I see. I do not. So this is the real story. Yeah. That's why we, he, again, he thought everybody knew this. Everybody did know it. But the reporters, and you think, oh, fake media is always trying to destroy Donald Trump. They're actually uh, withholding a lot of information or passing it over or putting it on, on, on sourced. And, but they all had their press secretaries. They're all doing it. So what was it? It was a White House full of leaking opportunists. Everybody that's there. And of course, you could say, oh, in any White House, people are. I mean, if you said to me, hey, Jeff, you want to work at the White House? I'd be like, wow. I mean, you'd obviously feel for your own personal edification. That'd be awesome to be on my resume. I've worked in the White House. That's cool. Um, you can't help but, but see the, the self-interest and the self-opportunity in it. But this is like no other White House ever and no other Republican Congress ever in that that's why they're all just being complicit. They don't want to be complicit. They can see that this man is, a, you know, everything you say, a man-child mean. One of the meanest stories that came out of it was how he likes to mess with uh, his friends' uh, wives and things and their husbands and try to get them in trouble with each other. You see this? He would, he would call uh, a wife that he wanted, someone, some guy's wife that he wanted to bang or at least to ingratiate himself with. He would get the husband, who was also his friend, in the room, and then on speakerphone, he'd have the wife listening in while he would tell the husband, hey, you know, I got a bunch of women coming in from L.A. Uh, We'll do anything you want. It's crazy, good, naked fun. You want to join in so that the wife would hear the husband go along with it so he could destroy that marriage so that he could potentially come in 
and be the, you know, the, the Casanova or whatever, or just destroy. When you can't be number one and your ego demands you to be number one, but you can't do it because you can't actually excel, then you have to make everybody else number two. You have to destroy everybody else to elevate you. It's the old, I'm drowning, but if you come near me, I'm going to pull your head underwater just to get my head out. And so this White House, this is what we're learning, is full of leaking opportunists who said, I'll stay, I'll do it, because I just want to aggrandize, I want to make my life better. Because you know, let's face it, if you just put on an application, hey, well, we're going to, even if you said what it was, you can come work with the most insane madman that has ever occupied the White House, but you get a big salary, you're going to get a book deal, you can tell a talk about it later, it'll totally raise your value, your Twitter followers will go up, da 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 you'll do it. A lot of people will do it. And so they did. And that's why Republicans are sitting around. And the truth you're finding out, too, is that all these Republicans in Congress, they know that not only is he incompetent and crazy and a, and a child, but that Mueller has got him. That's why they held back the Fusion GPS stuff. They're just trying to keep this weird little show alive long enough so they can get their opportunities. And Republicans in Congress are waiting for Trump to hang himself and just get out of the way, let him tie his own rope and jump off the chair. And he's on his way. And it's happening faster than I even expected right now with the Steve Bannon explosion. It just shows that uh, it's imploding quicker than we expected. So when we come back, uh, the Golden Globes... This is Possibility Politics, the place where we look at this great experiment called America and hopefully leave it better than we found it. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks again, Juan, for putting the show together. And um, one more, a few more words here on the Michael Wolf implosion of the uh, Trump White House from day one implosion. It's a reason. It doesn't surprise when you hear that Melania openly wept when they won uh, because she knew she's married to him. She knows what a narcissist uh, malignant narcissist uh, guy he is and how he's completely he's semi-literate and doesn't read much and now he just has three TVs in his uh, re- executive residence where he retires early and eats McDonald's because he's afraid of being poisoned and watches uh, cable news shows and then tweets and calls about it calls his friends about it uh, because he doesn't have any attention span he doesn't read he's not curious but she also freaked out because she was enough to know some of the things that were going on you know, there was a moment apparently where Michael Flynn, uh, it was revealed in, in a meeting in the White House that uh, about one of the payments, I think it was the $45,000 payment he got from uh, Turkey or Ukraine. I can't remember the exact particulars, but when he was getting these payments and the people in the white in the room in the White House, Steve Bannon and company and Jared Kushner and all these folks were saying, well, wait a minute, that's going to be a problem. And he said, no, we're not going to win. They all thought, this was before the White House, I should say, when they were in the, um, when they were running for president. They didn't think he was going to win. They were quite convinced he wasn't going to win. That was part of the plan. That's why they all panicked. That's why Melania started crying, because they knew this was going to be the worst-case scenario. And in a weird way, I'm certainly glad uh, he won, because if he had lost, Hillary would have become president, right? And this, we would have been like Groundhog Day. We'd have another six years or four years of four years of tribalism. Where it would just be, and he would just be this heroic alternative who was cheated, Trump would, who was cheated out of the election. And he's going to go and we'd just be attacking Hillary every day. And it would just raise the anger. Even, I don't know that Putin thought he was gonna, it was going to get him to win either. But they did. Hope Hicks and Katie McFarlane. 
And their quote saying, we got to take care of Vladimir Putin because he just threw the U.S. election for us. They knew. They know the collusion. They knew what was going on. And these folks are going to, a lot of them are going to go to jail. And it may be like Watergate where we get, you know, 30, 40 indictments in one day. And there's going to be Congress people, I think, amongst those indictments. Uh, because they're behaving like they are, there's no reason to be so protective. It's not just to get their tax cut through. To go to the lengths they're going means that they have something to hide. Like a Devin Nunes, who apparently you remember when he when he when they when he first did that weird thing, we ran across to the Capitol to the to the down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House to to talk to them about something after he heard about these Russian collusion stories. Suddenly had to go talk to them. And then reporters dug up some things and found out that Russian money bought his wineries in Fresno Turlock area. So he's probably intertwined in the money laundering. Clearly, there's an extensive amount of it. And they're all opportunists, which is why they all leaked about each other. It would, And even Ivanka is an opportunist, said she was going to be the first female president. Just hold it together long enough so that she could uh, you know, take it over, and then maybe Jared would be the next president after that. It just doesn't even make any... It's just beyond uh, crazy. Sorry. And, and all these, if you had a whole White House full of opportunists that are all looking out for their own best interests, it'd be like a basketball team where everyone just wants to keep the ball and never pass it off to anybody else. You're, it's never going to work. <laughs> You're going to lose. You're going to lose a lot. And I have to say the Bannon-Trump divorce kind of surprised me at how fast that came. I expected that to take a little bit longer. But I knew it was happening because it's, the, again, the laws of reality, the laws of consciousness. An alliance between two pure victims, two obsessive victimhood-focused individuals can only end in blame and revenge. If the only lens you see through is persecution, your persecution and your victimhood, then you cannot form an alliance except for but the most temporary moments of shared victimhood. And as soon as that turns on it, then you will turn on each other as soon as it doesn't work anymore. And that's going to happen this year as we get closer to the 2018 elections. And some are going to more and more Republicans are just going to retire and the rest of them are going to realize that they're going down with a ship. So they either better jump it or uh, start doing something about it. But again, they're all waiting for Mueller to save them. Uh, they've got a government shutdown looming. You got two hundred thousand Salvadorans that Donald Trump administration says he's going to d- deport, who came here in two thousand one as a result of the uh, that giant earthquake. And you got the Dreamers, the DACA, that has to be worked out. And <laughs> and, and and all the while, these stories. Of not only is he surrounded by opportunists, but how he abused verbally and many other ways every single one of them. There is not a person in the White House that hasn't felt the wrath of this man. So the end, uh, we get to watch a very painful, uh, like a Greek tragedy, except it'll be our American tragedy. And this will be the greatest series of crimes against political our political democracy that we have seen since maybe Benedict Arnold. I don't know. I don't even know how to compare it Um, (laughs) because it will just exceed all that we've ever seen. So let's pivot to what some more good news. I want to leave you with some amazing things. If you saw the Golden Globes awards, normally, you know, that's just a drunken affair. They goof around. It's silly. Maybe there's a little bit of political politics in some of the acceptance speeches. This time, whoa, it was the night where Me Too became Time's Up. Right? You probably saw that stuff. Me Too becomes Time's Up. And that, uh, and by the way, a side note, 
Remember Al Franken, who kind of fell on his sword because he was uh, accused of allegations that he probably could have weathered, and he certainly probably could have had it discussed and, and investigated, and, and they were previous to his arrival. But he left, and, and he retired. Well, uh, there have been at least one major Democratic donor, a woman, in fact, who usually hands over millions of dollars to Democrats every year, who is planning to withhold her Uh, donations to Democrats who threw Al Franken under the bus. She thought they were too harsh on him. She thought that wasn't uh, proportionate to what we're talking about. So there's a lot of evolution in this Me Too and now Time's Up uh, circumstance. And if, uh, let me get a couple little uh, pieces from the Golden Globes in case you didn't catch them. Uh, one was when uh, Jessica Chastain made a little snide comment about uh, wage gaps. And I am so happy to announce that the winner of this category will also receive the 23% of her salary that went missing in the wage gap. That's true. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. That's Chris Hemsworth going along with it. And uh, so already saying, you know, there's a big wage gap in Hollywood and elsewhere. Right. Twenty three cents usually on the dollar less. Seventy six cents, seventy seven cents compared to a a male's dollar of earnings. Uh, Natalie Portman, when she was giving away the nominee for or listing the nominees for best director, which went to, by the way, The Shape of Water and Guillermo del Toro. uh, I saw it. I don't totally get it. Guillermo del Toro is kind of a. Uh, acquired taste, I think. It really makes really interesting, beautiful, fascinating movies with great performances and and great you know imagery. Uh, but it's a little weird. Just saying. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Anyway, Natalie Portman. And here are the all-male nominees. <laughs> so she pointed out, that, and that was uh, Ron Howard's very awkward laugh that followed it, that all the nominees for uh, the best director were male, which became particularly poignant when Barbara Streisand took the stage to announce uh, an award, and the best picture, and she is the only female director winner, and she made that point uh, in the Golden Globes. And, you know, that was 1984? That's when she won, 1984. That was 34 years ago? Folks, time's up! <laughs> Time's up. And uh, another great moment, of course, was Oprah, which led to this speculation of, of you know, talking about a of, of presidential run. Uh, I'll give you a little taste. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth to the power of those men. But their time is up. <laughs> I just hope that Reese Taylor died knowing that her truth, like the truth of so many other women who were tormented in those years, and even now tormented, goes marching on. It was somewhere in Rosa Parks' heart almost 11 years later when she made the decision to stay seated on that bus in Montgomery. And it's here with every woman who chooses to say, me too. And every man... Every man who chooses to listen. In my career, what I've always tried my best to do, whether on television or through film, is to say something about how men and women really behave, to say how we experience shame, how we love and how we rage, how we fail, how we retreat, persevere, 
and how we overcome. And I've interviewed and portrayed people who've withstood some of the ugliest things life can throw at you, but the one quality all of them seem to share is an ability to maintain hope for a brighter morning, even during our darkest nights. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. <laughs> so Oprah, start bringing and everyone to church. that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. <laughs> yeah. That, that brought the house down, as you can hear. There were so many just teary moments. Uh, and there were some controversy. Well, you could say it was all controversy, I suppose. But the, the discussion that followed, first of all, of Oprah being president. Or said, well, Oprah should be president. And, and that shows the Trump era. Because people would have said, ah, yeah, Oprah could be president. But before Trump, they would have said Oprah could be president. But we should, don't we want somebody who's already been in government, who's you know run a, who's been a governor of a state or a mayor of a major city or at least a congressperson or a senator? Uh, and now we're in this place after Donald Trump, where it's like, well, if Donald Trump could be president uh, just because he's famous. And don't estimate the power of fame. That has been something that's actually been part of the presidential election process forever. Andrew Jackson, most presidential historians will argue, was elected president because of his fame. The Battle of New Orleans. And he was in the papers. He was a larger than life you know, person in, in America. So uh, to translate that fame into the presidency worked. And he's almost as, if not equally narcissistic as, as Donald Trump was. And of course, he's famous for being an Indian killer which is, uh, among other things, uh, I don't want to disparage him entirely, but he's got a pretty, you can look it up, he's a pretty dark guy. And so all of that, and with Oprah, and then you notice about the, the, the controversies that came that men uh, were quiet. There weren't any men who spoke up and said uh, something about the Me Too. And I was amazed that the Twitterverse first started to attack men. Like, why weren't you men also saying something? And I thought... As a male, the first thing I said was, well, weren't we supposed to be listening? I thought that was the point, is that this was a night where women got to say, we are going to take this back. And so we all, I think men did what they're supposed to do at the Golden Globes, which was to be quiet and let women have their spotlight instead of mansplaining, right? Or jumping in. And, you know, Seth Meyers did some great jokes about it. And but otherwise it was there. And then the last moment, I think, if you didn't catch this, uh, I Tanya, a great movie. Also, Three Billboards is an interesting movie. They say it's about compassion. I watched it. it. Seems mostly about anger begets anger and about revenge, with little tinges of people trying to be compassionate and not doing so well at it. But fascinating movie. Uh, uh, judge for yourself. But I Tanya, Allison Janney's comment. Listen to this. Tanya Harding is here tonight, and I just um. I, I just, uh, I'd like to thank Tanya for sharing her story with Stephen and, allow, and allowing him to tell all the different sides of the story. And what I love about this movie, what this entire Sebastian, Julianne, everyone in this movie did is tell a story about class 
in yes. America. Tell a story about the disenfranchised. Tell a story about a woman who was not embraced for her individuality. Tell a story about truth and the perception of truth in the media and the truths yes. we all tell ourselves when we wake up in, in bed every morning and go out and live our lives. It's an extraordinary movie. I'm so proud of it. See, I, Tanya, for that. The commentary on class. You will find Tanya Harding, I think, to be a very sympathetic character. And I remember being around during it thinking she was just this sleazy, trashy, oh my God, why is she here? But that was the point. She nailed two triple axles in a performance which nobody had done at that point and very few have done since. And it was one of those cases where, what more do you want from this woman born in poverty and anger and cruelty and abuse and misery and crime who managed to bust her butt to do the impossible, and you still treat her like crap. And you still create a narrative to exploit her fame. It is a fascinating and an exciting experience. Please go see that. Please be thrilled with what we have been uh, doing as an American people because we are killing it right now. We're doing very well. The renaissance is on. Those, the helpers, as as Mr. Rogers' mom would say, are the ones running the show now. And it's going to get better and better. But I will warn you, 2018 is going to be where that crosses over. The convergence where we move and shift from the insanity into the magic. Thank you for listening. Next show, a little teaser here. I want to get into it because one of the things that was fascinating that happened in the beginning of the new year is that there was this moment of guilt and shame by a bunch of social media moguls saying, I think we kind of screwed this up. That the way what we did with social media and mass communication and amplifying fame and dopamine and the quick release of having millions of followers has been super damaging, not only to our electorate, but to our psychology. And I want to get into that on the next time we meet. Thank you for listening. This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose-colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 